A recent United Nations report shows that women are underrepresented at all levels of decision-making worldwide. They say that women in executive government positions and gender equality in the highest positions of power will not be reached for another 130 years. How can we close the gender gap and achieve true representation? Meet Mary Hayashi, an award-winning author and passionate advocate for diversity and women's rights. As a former California State Assembly member and national healthcare leader, she's been a driving force behind crucial healthcare reforms. Mary's impactful work also includes pioneering partnerships for social causes lacking support. Join us as we explore her journey in serving America and championing the rights of its most vulnerable citizens. Mary Hayashi, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you so much. So your book, Women in Politics, just came out, and it's a timely and eye-opening account of breaking down the barriers to achieve true representation. And you've interviewed a number of women in the political sphere for this book. I believe you've selected a passage we're going to share with our listeners. I'm a huge fan of the podcast and honored to be interviewed today. My book journey began with my desire to provide women a platform for speaking their minds. And one of the goals in writing this book, you know, is to inspire other women to write their own life path and to see that we don't have to be controlled by our backgrounds or ethnicities or family histories because somebody like me isn't supposed to be in politics. And so that's one of the big theme of this book. And of course, you know, there are many valuable lessons that I talk about as relates to women in leadership. Chapter one, Breaking Barriers. While we celebrate the accomplishments of women, it's crucial to remember the long-standing systemic gender discrimination women have faced. Generations of cultural, systemic, and racial barriers were in the midst of a profound yet still unfolding transition. Viewing this transition through a historical lens underscores the magnitude of what we still need to overcome. In California, for example, only 192 women have served in the state legislature since 1911, when women were first allowed to hold office. This is out of 497 total California state legislators. With this context, we're reminded that while the numbers might improve, we have a generation of inequality to compensate for. There is not one single glass ceiling that women in politics need to break through to succeed. In truth, we are faced with numerous barriers blocking our path to power, financial, cultural, racial, and social. We must apply our creativity and grit to climb over them, crawl under them, and go around them any way we can, and then turn around and lend a helping hand to the women coming behind us. The journey requires momentum and resilience. It's not just one magic moment. The biggest barrier of all is the barrier in our imagination. Just as my good girl training as a child in Korea limited my imagination, so too as our society good girl training limited our collective imagination of what women can do, be, and achieve. In her book, The Likeability Trap, How to Break Free and Succeed as You Are, author Alicia Menendez says, quote, studies have found that when the press talks about a woman candidate's looks, she becomes less likable. It doesn't matter whether the coverage is positive, negative, or neutral. Menendez goes on to explain that even if the press discusses a man's appearance, which is very rare, 
since there isn't much variation in style among male politicians, such coverage does not have the same impact on a man as it does on a woman. It's not just a woman's appearance that gets much more attention than it should. Our mannerisms and behavioral traits are often the focus of women politicians. With our good girl upbringing, women are not encouraged to be strong or assertive. In Korean culture, the behaviors required to run for and serve in public office do not come naturally for women. Our society values more masculine style leadership. And we're often told we're not, we don't have what it takes to lead because of our more feminine personality traits. As a young girl, I was told to be modest. I should undervalue my skills and accomplishments and never exhibit self-promotion. As I got older, I often worried about coming across too strong, too opinionated, or taking too much credit. Because of cultural factors like these, when a woman announces her candidacy for public office, people often view her with distrust, and her motivations for running are questioned. No matter what we do, we're often penalized for being ambitious. In the likability trap, Menendez explains that while male candidates may struggle with likability, Research shows that voters will support a male candidate even if they don't like him, if they believe he's qualified for the job. Women candidates face a different test to win. They need to be liked and perceived as competent. And while voters assume men are competent, women must prove that they are. So true. I mean, you talked also about the different standards that we see. Trump, I mean, he even bragged that he said that he could go out and shoot someone on the street and still nothing would happen to him. That's the difference of the bullying tactics and the double standards. And your book couldn't be more timely. According to a September UN report, uh, data shows that women are underrepresented at all levels of decision-making worldwide and that uh, achieving gender parity and political life is far off. Uh, women in executive government positions and gender equality in the highest positions of power, they say, will not be reached for another 130 years. So I'm happy with the progress, but we are looking at the year 2150 or thereabouts. So I love to hear that because then that's a challenge to see how we can get there faster and provide great candidates who, as you point out in your book, you know, and with your interviews, women run for office for different reasons oftentimes than men. Right, right. And it is important to keep in mind, though, we've had a record number of women winning in 2020 election cycle. So there may be this perception that we're okay, but as you point out, we're not. And we have a long way to go. And one of the things that I love talking about is why women run for public office. Because the existing research that I was able to gather and the interviews that I've done clearly demonstrate that women run for office to solve problems. And I'm not saying that men don't, but their motivation often relates to seeking a leadership position. Position. And the most simple way to describe that is when a man starts his own company, he does that because he wants to be in a leadership position. He wants to be the owner. He wants, you know, more power, decision-making, authority. When a woman starts a business for herself, it's often to have scheduling flexibility so that she could serve others, so she can be available to her kids. And so it's sort of similar in that when women run for office, they usually do it because they have a personal mission. I want to solve gun violence. I want to stop signing in front of my house. I don't want somebody to get hurt. 
I want to fix homelessness. And so it's important to remember why we run for office and more women are needed because when women do run, they are very competitive and they win almost at the same rate as men. But the problem lies where women are not encouraged to run. They often find the process intimidating, careful in some cases, and they get discouraged by the fact that they don't feel that they're qualified as a candidate and as an elected official. And so there are these barriers, systemic barriers, and also you know, the imagination barrier that I talk a lot about that women themselves have, you know, like I could never see myself in a leadership position. And we made history in 2020 with a record number of women winning in the United States. But when we say record number, we have one Black woman in the U.S. Senate. And at the time when I wrote the book, we had no Black women serving in the United States Senate. We have one now, LaFonza Butler, and I interviewed her for the book. And at the time, she was the president of the Emily's List. And one of the quotes that she said was, we have no Black women in the U.S. Senate. We have one now. But that's really nothing to be celebrating about when you think about the, the, the lack of women of color representation in our legislative branch. And it's surprising because women, I think, we we naturally sort of build coalitions and when we get power, it's often through a kind of collaboration. Uh, And so it almost seems like with the media platforms, there's like two things running for office. And then on the other hand, the actual collaborating and passing legislation, the quiet process or the diligence to get those things done. And I just feel like you should almost have one person manage all of the running for office, but those in charge who get things done, it's a quiet process. It's not the people who are ready to insult and showboat and all those things. Right. And one of the studies that I mentioned in the book very early on, I was really surprised even in places like in Germany, you know, where their top leader is a woman, people still don't trust women to be leaders. And so the number of barriers that a woman is experiencing as a candidate during the campaign, even when you win and you're serving inside the government, there's still other challenges to overcome. And one of them is obviously people don't see women as effective leaders. And that's a real problem. Because last year, we had a record number of women becoming leaders uh, within their government positions, the Senate president and the speaker. And we've had a record number of women governors get elected. But it doesn't mean their path is easy or it's set because of the gender bias stereotypes. And women are supposed to be coalition builders. We're not supposed to be ambitious. One of the things that I talk a lot about is that ambition gap. We're penalized when we show our ambition. People are often suspicious of our motivation. Why is she running? What is she about? And being an Asian American woman, I talk a lot about you know, how I was perceived by my colleagues after I won and chairing one of the most powerful policy committees in the legislature. I often felt like people didn't know how to engage me as a peer. They've never seen an Asian American woman in that role before, or many of them haven't. And so if I come across, you know, opinionated, then they would criticize me for being too ambitious or too aggressive. And that really takes a toll on you. Just emotionally, it's hard. And studies have shown that even in corporate America, when people work with Asian women, the stereotype of Asian women being quiet and grateful for just little things and just work hard at your desk and not 
seen as a manager or a leader when you present behavior that's contrary to that stereotype. Women are often penalized for those types of styles. And I see that similarity in politics as well. I often wondered, am I really aggressive? I mean, I wasn't raised that way. <laughs> but when you have an opinion, people are just not used to seeing an Asian woman as peers in that role. And that really needs to change. And I think it will over time as they see more people like us serving in leadership roles. Oh, definitely. Yeah, it, it's almost like the gender bias that are applied to the broad population of American women is twofold than for Asian women because there's these preconceptions about traditional roles. And I want to go, of course, into your upbringing because you were born in South Korea. But, you know, just as a little insertion, we found with our project, it's open to all, but around 90% of applications to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast are women. I think that women are curious and they're not afraid to say they don't know something and they want to learn. And the men maybe feel, I know everything about creativity, or I'm just ready to go. As you said, they feel like they're qualified even before they're qualified. So it's an interesting psychological survey that we've had. Well, when I saw that you were the leader and some of the past podcast interviews you have done, my immediate sort of emotional response to your program is that this is a safe place. Because for women in politics, just because we experience a lot of online abuse, we'll get a lot of criticisms, requires a lot of different opinions that we also have to sort of incorporate. And so there's a lot of conflict management in political work in that space. And when I saw your podcast, I felt immediately comfortable. And I think maybe that's why you're also getting a lot of Asian women or Korean women interested because... That was sort of my initial reaction to you. So I'm not surprised. Thank you. I like to be welcoming. Just tell us a little bit about your upbringing in South Korea and, you know, what drew you to politics as well. Again, there's a personal reason. So I, I came here when I was 12 and I didn't speak any English. And my parents moved us here the same year that my older sister passed away. She died by suicide. She was 17 and I was 12. It was six months prior to coming to this country. And, you know, back in 1980, around that time, a lot of Koreans were immigrating to the United States because of political instability and the dictator was assassinated in 1979. And so a lot of families with resources were sort of fleeing the country at that moment. We came here and my parents decided to settle in Orange County, which is mostly white population. The only Asian person I think people knew was Connie Chung on TV. So my nickname was Connie. And I was like really flattered. I, I thought, oh, wow, that's really cool because I, I would see her on TV and, you know, she's like the, one of the few Asian people that I see and she's articulate, she looks smart, just really well together. And we never talked about my sister's passing because in Korean culture, you don't really do that. My parents just got rid of her things and she was literally cut out of all of our family photographs. It was almost like she never existed. And I think that this is stigma associated with mental illness that many families sort of struggle with, that they're so ashamed to talk about what happened. And as long as we are feeling that way about this issue, I feel like, you know, we're going to have more people like my sister who won't be able to ask for help. Just because it's like you can't even talk about it, then who's going to come forward and say, I need help? And my parents expected me to go to college just enough that I can find somebody that I can marry 
and have kids. Their expectation of me was not to be educated or pursue higher advanced degrees. No, they're like, daughters are going to get married before they turn 21. Because over 21, you're like old maid and nobody's going to want to marry you. I mean, that was really their mentality. And so I was supposed to marry somebody that they had arranged for me to meet when I was like 20. And at that time, I was attending Cal State Long Beach. And I've only been in the country for maybe seven years at that time and just kind of feeling lost and don't know what I want to do with my life. And one day I signed up for this women's studies class. Initially, I thought it was about, oh, I could be a better woman to my husband and my kids. I I had no idea what this was, but it was intriguing, like maybe home economics. And that's when I was introduced to women's literature, feminist literature. And I started reading about the women's movement and how Gloria Steinem went from playboy model to becoming a feminist and how that transpired. And when I started reading about these women who did what they wanted to do, that's when I think the light bulb went on my head that I can actually have a career. I can do something with my life. And I'm not a professional writer. I'm a politician and I do government affairs work, but this is my second book. I always want to go back to sort of writing and publishing a book as a way to help other women realize their path, because that's what feminist literature did for me. And that's what women's studies class did for me. And once I finished college, I moved away from home and I started a national nonprofit organization addressing Asian American women's health because I kept thinking about my older sister and people like her who have just kind of gotten forgotten. You know, she didn't exist anymore. And I was just wondering how many people might be affected by that type of experience. So I started this national organization. I was 26 years old. I had no idea what I was doing. And very fortunate to have connected with other women of color activists who mentored me, helped me get this organization off the ground. And it was incredible. For 10 years, I worked on advocating for Asian American women's health issues at the federal level and have influenced federal government to doing more for Asian American women and mental health. And so I'm really sort of proud of that legacy and I was able to do that because because I had that personal experience with my sister growing up in Korea where no one ever talked about mental illness or mentally ill siblings or family member. So that's my long-winded answer, part of my personal and professional journey plans and some of my motivation for writing this book as well. We're so glad you did. I'm actually also from Orange County, so I definitely know where you're coming from. But I find it really um, remarkable to hear about how you went from silent and invisible to finding your voice in education. Can you share more about the role that education played in empowering you? How taking a course could make such um, an impacting and lasting effect? Sure. And just for my own benefit, are you a student now? Yes, I'm a student at NYU right now. Um, also oh. in major too. <laughs> oh, wow. I think just thinking back, I didn't know at the time where my life was supposed to go because my parents were like, well, you have to get married before you turn 21 and getting a degree isn't that important to you. You know, get, finding the right husband is. That's kind of the generation they're from. And so it, this may not be that relevant to you because it's you're at one of the top schools and you probably... Normally, nowadays, a lot of people have the support of their parents if they want to go to college. But for me, it wasn't prioritized. But I really wanted to go somewhere. So I went to Cal State Long Beach. 
And when they ask you in the application, what do you want to major in? Women's studies wasn't a major at the time. It was like a sub major of like a sociology or some other bigger subject matter. Then I thought, oh, I, I think this is where I need to be because if I'm going to be married by 21, I need to be the best good girl and get that training. So I signed up for the class and I still have the book. It's called Women Literature. And the first chapter is Writing of Jane Eyre. And I thought, oh, okay, so this is a woman who, you know, is probably a good example for me. And it really changed my life. I mean, just literally one class. It was Introduction to Women's Studies 101 or something like that. And it was that first book and I still have all these highlighting markings on it. And that one class, that one book, it really changed my life and made me think about how other women have struggled and overcome these challenges and pursued their dreams. And at that time, women were going to law school and becoming doctors. And I thought, well, why can't I have a career? Why can't I do something with my life? That one class just really changed me. And that is the reason why I keep writing and publishing because I don't enjoy writing, Nicole. I do not. I went through a lot of rounds of editing and I love the format it's in now, but I am not a professional writer, but I keep wanting to do that. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that you know, when I was 19, 20 years old, it's kind of being lost. It was just that one book, that one class that gave me just a glimpse of hope that I could be some somebody, I could do something. And I actually just took a course very similar to that. And I had a book called How to Read by Elaine Castillo. And the author talks about how people of color and women are often expected to educate others when they do write a book and that reading is a political action because even like Jane Eyre, it's such a good feminist book, but it also has so much links to imperialism and um, sexism and women's struggles in that culture. And so um, how do you think, especially with your reference to the imagination barrier, that we can create a conversation um, while also not feeding into this expectation of always having to educate people as women of color and as women in the work field? Oh, wow. That's like a really smart and tough question. We could like talk about that for like an hour and without trying to use this session as my own therapy session. But there's a chapter in my book called Racial Barriers. I, I try to sort of in the context of politics and in my world, try to present information to the broader audience that there's been a lot of education, for example, about supporting women candidates and funding them and giving them more money so they can be funded just as well as male candidates. But that whole effort, that campaign mostly benefits white women candidates. So for women of color, we still get less. Not much has changed for us. And the reason for that is because we are not seen as viable candidates. You know, like, oh, more masculine style is what leadership looks like. And so that leads to thinking, oh, a quiet Asian woman isn't going to be a leader or a manager. So those kinds of stereotypes definitely play a role. And even in politics, women of color are still grossly underrepresented. And in fundraising, we don't get the benefit of all this fundraising education. Also for Latina women, their stereotype is that they do low-wage work. That's what people see. And so even though they're the fastest growing segment of college educated population, the pay does not reflect that. 
and the pay gap, it's just outrageously high between white women and Latina women. When you look at their pay for equal work, they're still getting less pay because of that stereotype. If you look at the charts, they're getting college degrees more than any other racial population in America. And but the imagination of people, the stereotype is still a barrier. So these are some of the examples that I try to talk about in my book. And I'm not an expert in business setting, but in politics, women of color do carry the burden of educating others, having more patience. We can't get angry because if you get angry, then you're an angry black woman stereotype. Oh, you're angry Asian women. So you have to not only educate people, but you also have to be nice the way you educate people because, oh, God forbid, if you show your emotions or if you get angry, then that's also bad too. So there's a lot that we sort of carry and I think put on ourselves. At the same time, someone like yourself who, you know, is aware of this, raising awareness and calling people out is a very effective way to stop the cycle. It really is. It works. When you tell people, when you point stuff out, I put in my book that somebody called me a cute oriental. This is when I was in the legislature and this person was complimenting me. He was trying to say that he was very appreciative that I was authoring one of his bills. And he said, oh, I didn't realize my author is a cute oriental. At the time, I just kind of like, you know, you just have to kind of roll with it because there's so many of these happening to me. I, I don't have time to confront and educate every single person. But after I realized it really takes an emotional toll, it really makes me sad and it does impact you. It really does. And I try to be strong and I can handle this. People call me Fiona because they can't tell between me and a, another Asian woman serving in the state legislature. There's two of us and they can't tell who's who. And she's Chinese. I'm Korean. We're different. But Nicole, if you had a supervisor, would you forget her name and her face? No. She's important, <laughs> right? So yeah. the message is that we're not important. I'm not even worth remembering. And we, this is a job where you go every day. And there's people that I work with and they can't figure out if I'm Mary or Fiona. And so and then at the same time, like, you can't get mad about it because then people think you're crazy <laughs> if you get upset. So women of color, we just carry a lot of burden and a lot of responsibilities. And I think the only way to break that cycle is to just start calling people out. And I try to do that now. And writing about those incidences in my book has raised a lot of suspicions about who was that? Who did that to her? I'm getting inquiries from people in Sacramento saying, I think I know who that was. I'm like, well, yeah, this is not right. So in your role, Nicole, as somebody who is obviously way advanced in terms of looking at these things critically, I think that you have a unique role to maybe pointing people out. But I think it's really, really tough because... Yes, we have to write about it. We have to educate people about it. And we have to raise awareness. And we still have to be nice. Yes. And you've written also about the model minority myth. In some ways, there's truths in it. But it, I often feel as Asian Americans that we succeed almost by virtue of invisibility. If we make ourselves too noticeable, then, you know, all, all sorts of scrutiny and other labels are put on us. I want to go back to that. You have written about the pay gap the fundraising gap and an unfortunate part of, I guess, all politics, but particularly in America, there are these huge hurdles of fundraising. You can set me straight on the percentage of your time that must be spent fundraising and passing legislation. 
So for those who might have leadership roles within their communities, but might not be ready to spend so much of their time fundraising in order to spend part of their time doing legislation, what are some other ways that we can affect change within our communities? And also, what are your reflections on the predominant fundraising practices in the U.S. and whether we should put caps. So the example that I use in my book is the first woman mayor of Los Angeles. Pretty crazy to think about. Well, first woman mayor was elected last year. We've never had a female mayor of Los Angeles. And do you know how diverse Los Angeles is? That race was worth talking about. I actually worked on Mayor Karen Bass's race and the contribution limit for that race is $1,500 per person. And she raised $8 million with a $1,500 gap. But most of the contributions were smaller than that, a lot smaller. And her opponent, a multi-billionaire land developer, self-funded, the numbers keep changing, but I think it was close to $100 million he spent of his own money trying to win LA mayor's race. And, and women might look at that and go, oh, I could never compete with somebody like him, you know, who has like unlimited bank account and you can just move money. And Karen, if she doesn't win mayor's race, she doesn't know how she's going to pay her mortgage. I mean, it's, she's not a wealthy person. She spent last two decades doing public service. But we were not intimidated by him because she has the right experience. She has the messages. She has the support of the community, the voters, not the businesses. I mean, the businesses don't vote. It's the actual voters. And the way she won that race, and I have a whole chapter on the dark side of social media and what it does to women, but the positive side of social media is that you are able to compete and raise money through social media, just like anybody else can, spending very little. So we were able to raise $8 million over the course of like a year, a mostly $50 average donation per person. We just created this sort of national movement. We're running against a billionaire who has no experience. Reminds you of somebody, right? At the federal level. And we have somebody who did all the public policy work in addressing foster care and homelessness. I mean, this has just been our life's work. And a leader, you know, a congresswoman and born and raised in LA. So we launched a national campaign for her and raised small dollars and went neck to neck and beat him. I mean, we beat this guy. So money really isn't everything. That is not the deciding factor. I can show you one example after another. Woman versus man. And there's other examples, other women of color examples in that chapter. But there's so many examples where most amount of raise money candidate don't necessarily always win. It's the right messaging and it's the right base. And it's people who can relate to the voters and who can get the message out. And social media can help you get competitive. And I was really sold. And I think she was very smart to use emails. We basically ask people through emails because mailing is so expensive. All days, you have to mail people and say, can you donate? When I first published my book, there was no social media or like internet. We had dial up internet. Nicole probably doesn't know what that is. Look it up, Google it. You can't download images or anything. I mean, that's kind of the era that, that I was from. And when I was running, it was like that. We, we had no social media campaigns. It was door to door or mail by postal service. But I think now technology and, and the advancement in technology really allows women to be more competitive. So it can be done. If she can do it, if she can run against somebody who spent $100 million and win, I think there's some 
good lessons that we can take from that race and apply. I'm Nicole Aquino, and we just explored Mayor Karen Bass's historic mayoral campaign, where social media and grassroots support played a pivotal role against a well-funded opponent. This challenges the conventional belief that success in politics hinges solely on access. Instead, it underscores the significance of messaging, community engagement, and technology. So, can the evolving tech landscape level the playing field for candidates with diverse backgrounds and limited resources? This brings us full circle to Mary Hiyashi's insights on the authenticity of government. Breaking down walls and bringing awareness to voters about the backgrounds of these public policy advocates is crucial. This open door into the lives of those working for change can dismantle the imaginative bias Mary discusses. A larger issue hindering women from entering politics without having to overcome extra hurdles to gain voter confidence. A more humane narrative might just be the key, allowing voters to see government as a realm where experience trumps inherently sexist leadership qualifications. Now back to the interview. And using that race as an example, how you teamed up and reinforced these ideas that she has what it takes because she has the experience. The experience that you wrote about in your book with the local Democratic Party chairwomen who made a comment towards you that affected the way you were thinking. How did you navigate the discouragement specifically from women themselves telling you these things that obviously you wouldn't expect from your fellow woman? And what advice would you offer to aspiring female candidates? So it's interesting that you found that little story because it had a big impact on me. You know, when you're campaigning for office, there are a lot of surprises. And Dr. Lisa Reynolds, who I interviewed, said it best. When I asked her, is campaigning harder than going to medical school? She said, yes. And, and it's because she says medical school, you do the studying, you pass the exam, and you become a doctor. When you're campaigning, you just don't know. And she didn't get the Planned Parenthood endorsement. She's a physician. So you just have to like not have expectations because you don't know what's going to happen. And I didn't know that being a first-time candidate. And I think that's why that was so hurtful and memorable at the same time. I thought, because I had done all this work at the national level, I worked with Tipper Gore on the first White House Conference on Mental Health. And I was so proud of myself. I thought, oh, wow, because I could never forget my sister, what had happened to her. I took that and did all this advocacy and made this tremendous impact at the federal level. And I have the endorsement of Tipper Gore for my assembly race. I was proud of myself. And I thought, I'm ready for this. And I have all these endorsements and I've raised all this money. So I went to go meet with the Democratic Party chair. And I said, I want to run. I want your support. This is great. We were women. And she says, well, have you thought about running for local hospital board? And I said, no, that's not my interest. But why? And she said, well, how are you going to win? You don't have any experience. And that was so long ago. And there's so many other more experiences that are traumatizing. But that was really hurtful because I didn't expect it. And I just didn't know. That was a big lesson. Like, oh, okay. I can't really have this expectation. Just because I work hard, that doesn't mean people are going to reward me with that. And she also said, you know, you, you never served a local elected office. You never ran for office. Maybe city council will be more appropriate. And I asked her, I said, well, my opponent never ran for office either. As a white male, never ran for office. He's been at one job for 30 years. Very respectable job. But are you asking him the same question? And she was pretty quiet. She never answered me. And people really celebrated him. He was a firefighter. He's a county fire chief. He's just this really great guy. But never questioned 
do you have campaign experience or can you win? So if somebody says I can't do something, I'm motivated to prove them wrong. And that really humbled me like, oh, check this out. I'm nobody. I was so proud of myself. I had all these endorsements and it turns out I've got a lot of work to do. So it also allowed me to kind of work harder. And that experience made me realize that there is no expectation. You could prepare as much as you want, but you just don't know what the outcome's going to be. And it was really hurtful. And the fact that she's a woman who didn't ask the man the same question that she asked me, of course, I was really taken back. And I thought I left Korea many years ago, but some things felt very, very same, like the way she sort of made me feel. Mm -hmm. What did I do? I turned around and got the firefighters union endorsement. He was the fire chief. So I try to do what I can to win. And that's sort of my message to women is that you can't get discouraged because of that one incident or one comment or one person's point of view. My first boss, my real boss at a nonprofit that I worked in, she didn't support me. So that was also very hurtful. I think that's in the mentoring chapter, but she did not want to support me. She's like, you're not ready. And I was like, but I did all these things. And she ended up endorsing my opponent. So that's what happens. But it's okay. You just have to keep going. And I think that the U.S. political landscape has a tendency to project authority and power. And I know in your book, you discuss being more approachable and using all the experience that you have and different traits that don't usually qualify as the kind of things that would make you the best candidate to your advantage. And I was wondering, do you think that there's a willingness among voters to embrace a more approachable idea of government? I know that a lot of people usually tend to stick to the U.S. power being very authoritative authoritative and powerful and strong. Yeah. When you look at, even in Congress, you look at the diversity of people's backgrounds, you'd be surprised to know that not everybody's from Ivy League and they're lawyers and from good families, very diverse. The best way to answer that is just being authentic and the type of women who do win uh, and get elected to public office are not what you normally imagine. And when I was fundraising, this is around the time that I was talking to my party chair and getting knocked out and stuff. And I had to make these cold calls to men for money because if you're a Democrat, you have to go and ask for union support. And most of them were at the time men. I, I don't think I've ever saw a woman unless like, I went to the home care workers union or teachers union or something like that. But a lot of the powerful unions were controlled by men. And I had to call them and ask for money. And my first real job during the interview, I didn't even ask them how much it pays because I was taught never discuss money or ask for money from strangers or anything like that. So I was just grateful. I just thanked her for hiring me. And the human resources manager is like, well, do you want to know how much it pays? I'm like, no, I'll just take whatever. And I was just very uncomfortable. So somebody like me, I mean, I can even ask how much the position paid to making call calls to men asking for money. That is such a transition and change for me personally. And a lot of challenges that I had to overcome to get there. And I think about that moment, there's a some level of shame because I'm not supposed to do that. But then in order to succeed, in order to be American in this powerful U.S. government authority figure, I need to be 
more masculine style person. I need to project that white male behavior. And so I kind of transitioned from, don't tell me how much I'm making. I'm going to take the job because I'm not supposed to ask for money from strangers or people that I don't know. I went from that behavior in my early 20s to 10 years later, I am cold calling people for money because that's what I thought I was supposed to do. And I think Things have changed now for the better, but there's certainly a lot of room for us to grow too, where women making fundraising calls, that's one thing, but to give us less than our male counterpart, for example, those kinds of bigger structural issues, I think is something that really needs to stop and we need to call out. So there's a lot of progress that we have made, but for women of color and at the structural level, there are still a lot of barriers. And I try to succeed when I was inside government by learning from other white men because they were mostly white men. Oh, okay, that's what I'm supposed to do. But it doesn't have to be like that anymore. We have so many women examples. We have so many women leaders, women of color leaders that we can see and model after. So I hope that you will have other resources and other examples to follow and that we can reject those models and the styles that we don't want. And speaking of not being passive and letting things roll over us, you're based in California, which originates many of the new technologies. And uh, President Biden has just unveiled a new executive order on AI, a U.S. government's first action of its kind, requiring new safety assessments, equity and civil rights guidance, researching AI's impact on the labor market. With this governance in place, can tech companies be counted on to do the right thing for humanity? And what are your feelings? Should mothers be involved in speaking up for how this is affecting the neuroplasticity of our young people? What's the importance of governance and what role can we play in designing the future we want to live in? Well, I'm not an expert on AI issues. It just frightens me a great deal. But any meaningful change always comes from outside. And tech companies or pharmaceutical companies, they're not going to govern themselves. And social media companies still need to be held accountable for spreading false information, monitoring contents that are harmful to women. There's just so much they still need to do. It's doubtful that the tech companies will do the right thing, I'm sorry to say. I was original uh, member of the National Breast Cancer Coalition organization that was founded many years ago because in 1990, less than $80 million was being spent on breast cancer research and billions on everything else. And it's one of the leading causes of death for women. In every state, we delivered 2 million signatures to the White House demanding that they pay attention to breast cancer. And that's when President Clinton announced major federal initiatives. And so while we need partners inside to drive that change. And I think this is why women in government is important because women advocate for reproductive rights, equal pay, family leave was done by women. Women are able to fly combat helicopters because of Patricia Schroeder in Congress. And so women inside of government do make a difference and they, they do great things, but the pressure and the accountability, that movement really comes from outside. And that's been my personal experience. People we're advocating for accountability from outside then can bring about change within government. It's great that uh, President Biden is announcing these things, but like real change requires a lot more than that. Look at the gun issue. 
What is the problem? The public opinion is in our favor. And I'm sorry to assume that we're on the same page on guns, but just as an example, the government doesn't necessarily do or take action that is representative of the public opinion. Yes. And indeed, with things like climate change, this year has been the warmest on record. We can't just stop at legislation because often it's just suggestions. It doesn't always trickle down into all the areas. So we need that real action within the community and the consumer action and pressurizing and divesting. It's a whole network. So I know that, of course, California is badly hit with the wildfires, drought, water shortages. You know, what do you feel on the importance of telling stories about the climate and the environmental humanities in order to inspire change? You know, one of the things that I was really inspired by recently is is these lawsuits that are happening all over, the lawsuits that are brought on by young people. I think it's happening in overseas as well, right? In other countries. Germany and Montana. And I thought to myself, good. (laughs) And the legal system is only going to be able to do so far, as we all know. To me, that was more about just raising awareness. Any significant movement in this country doesn't happen just like overnight. And that's why I say in my book, it's not one magical moment. It's an ongoing process. I think this is sort of how we build a movement. And I was really encouraged for the plaintiffs to be such young people. It just kind of gave me hope because a lot of times you hear these news stories and you feel kind of hopeless and powerless because the problem is so huge. (laughs) Oh, how do I fix the earth? I can't fix something that's in my own city sometimes. And this is a global issue. So I do get overwhelmed. But when I saw that, I was really encouraged. And I do think that just like other public policy issues, the public opinion and the public support is there. And we need people in leadership who's driving the ship It's great to send out press release with goals like, oh, by this year, we'll do that. But we need specific accountability. We need to stop the pollution. We need to hold companies accountable. Look at the power of EPA. They need to have more authority to assess fines and go after bad actors. We have a lot of legislation and policies on the books, but how are they being enforced? And with respect to government and and the political space, which I can speak to, we, we do need better vehicle for enforcement, accountability, and voting people out of office sometimes is necessary. As you think about the world that we're leaving for the next generation, and what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? There's always going to be a lot of issues to work on. The primary message that I want to really convey through my book, I always get excited about meeting people like Nicole and I'm speaking to high school seniors in San Francisco, which I'm really excited about. Those are the opportunities that I get really energized by because I feel like if young people are paying attention, then we have hope. And so the primary message is the interviews that I've done in the book, obviously documenting their personal and professional journeys, but also the research that I've been able to, to gather in this space proved that women's political participation does matter. It does. And research has shown that significant advancement in healthcare, education, women's rights, they all correlate with more women serving in government. It does. And so I really would love to see more women see themselves in a leadership role 
in politics. And you don't have to run their office. I, I give that example too. Giselle Hale was a candidate. She won in the primary, but decided not to go forward. Just wasn't right for her. And that's okay to do. And so we want more women to run for office, but certainly play more of a leadership role. And we have a lot to contribute. And more women serving in government will make a difference in all of these areas that you talked about, whether it's IE or environmental justice, global warming, reducing global warming, and women of color especially. I think we need to see more women of color in, in leadership role because we can't be what we can't see. And it's so true for me. I just didn't have that many mentors or role models when I was young. And reading that feminist literature opened my eyes. And so I really think that by showing more women out there that it's possible that women of color could run and win office, win public office and do great things, that our, that our world will be better. I really believe that. And I hope the book conveys that message. Thank you again for having me. Thank you, Mary Hayashi, for writing about women in politics, sharing your story, helping us break down barriers to achieve true representation, and just being an overall champion for gender equality. It creates an environment to which every woman and girl can exercise their rights to live up to their full potential. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Thank you so much for this opportunity. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Nicole Lucchino with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producers on this episode were Katie Foster and Nicole Lucchino. The Creative Process is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Sophie Garnier. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.